The question for this morning is this. When is enough enough? I think one of the greatest blessings in life is to be content. To have all you need. Not to long for something else, but to truly be satisfied. That is a rich blessing. Conversely, one of the greatest curses in life is to always want more. Right? Never be satisfied. You want something desperately, you get it, and it doesn't satisfy, you want more. You want a new car, you get it, but it's not the best car. You want a different car. You want more. You're always wanting more, 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 and you never come to the place where you are content. I tell you, that's got to be one of the worst curses in the world. In fact, I think that's going to be part of hell, always longing and never satisfied. The oil tycoon Paul Getty was once interviewed years ago in London, and the reporter asked him this interesting question, first time Getty had ever been asked this question. If you were to retire right now and added up all of your holdings, do you think it would equal a billion dollars? This was years ago. Oh, Getty said, I've never had that question uh, asked me before, and he began to ponder it. He was thinking deeply. He paced the room, and finally he said, well, I, I guess so. I guess it would add up to a billion, but remember, a billion is not what it used to be. <laughs> I mean, I might have a billion, but, you know, don't think that that's a lot. I need more. A reporter once asked a co-ed on a university campus, what do you want out of life? Her quick reply shocked him. She said, I want it all. <laughs> I want it all. Well, I'm here to tell you something that might shock you. You can have it all. You can have it all. In the sense of Psalm 23 and verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd and I have it all. Uh, there's a bit of a paraphrase there at the end of the verse. The Lord is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd, and I have it all. Any way you slice it, it says there is this wonderful, wonderful place where you can come to that God satisfies satisfies your deepest longings, meets, supplies your every need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have it all. This is one of the most universally known passages in all the Bible. When I do a funeral, sometimes I will ask people to quote this psalm with me as I read it. And people who don't even attend church on a regular basis can quote this psalm word perfect. But you know, there's a real difference between quoting the psalm and living the psalm. There's a big difference between being able to recite the words and experience the power of the message in your day-to-day -day life. I think with those of us who know the psalm, it's the idea that regular association can gradually develop less than deep appreciation. We began to take for granted, to overlook, to ignore, maybe even breed contempt. 
with those things that we know so well, but don't engage in the life. It's kind of this way with much of Scripture. Don't be hearers only, be doers of the word, James says. Make it real. And so my purpose this morning in looking at this familiar passage, which you already know, is to encourage you and me to make it real. And for us to grasp this wonderful, beautiful concept that if the Lord is our shepherd, we have all we need. Jesus assessed the situation like this in Matthew. When he lifted up his eyes, he had compassions on, compassion on the crowd because they were harassed and helpless. They were stressed out and nowhere to turn. And it's described like this. They were sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, right? Everyone needs a shepherd. Everyone needs a guide. Everyone needs a lord. Everyone needs a boss. And if you say, I don't, that's a wonderful confession of your great need that you really do. If you think you can go it alone all the way into eternity, my friend, you are sadly, sadly deceived. Everyone needs a shepherd. And Jehovah is the best shepherd of all. And when Yahweh is your shepherd, you have all you need. This statement in verse 1 is actually a declaration of faith. It's a statement of faith. Notice, as we look at it just briefly, it, it's clearly emphatic. That is, the focus is on the Lord. When the word Lord is capitalized, you know it's referring to Yahweh or Jehovah. And in the original language, often the words that are placed first in a sentence, first in a thought, are the words that the writer wants to emphasize. Now, if you read it literally, it'll sound like Yoda talk and sounds confusing. But this is what it says. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. It's all about Yahweh. He's first. He's foremost. And this makes a lot of sense because if you read the Old Testament, you'll notice that the shepherd motif, the image, is often given to Yahweh. We've been looking at images of God in the Psalms, right? And so we saw the shield and the sun and the king and the rock and even the worm. But this is the most comprehensive and intimate of them all, shepherd. David knew what he was talking about because before he got the gig as a king, he was a shepherd in the hills of Bethlehem. He knew what it was like to do all of these things for his sheep, all of these things he sees Jehovah doing for us. But in Psalm 78, verse 52, Jehovah brought his people out like a flock that is out of Egypt, and he led them like sheep through the desert. That's Yahweh. Or Psalm 80, in verse 1, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. That's his name, shepherd of Israel. Or as we see in Isaiah 40, in verse 11, Yahweh tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. 
Notice in each one of these verses, it's the idea of the shepherd leading. It's the idea of the shepherd being with his flock and caring. And it's the idea of tender, gentle, loving care. As Isaiah says, he puts us in his arms like we're little lambs. And he gently leads us. And that's what Psalm 23 is all about. So when David picks up this imagery in his wonderful song, it makes sense. But when we read this, the Lord is my shepherd, I cannot help but think of Jesus. For Jesus is Jehovah in the flesh, right? God incarnate. And three times, at least three times, you read about Christ being the shepherd in the New Testament, as Pastor Doug read from John 10. He is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he is the chief shepherd, and when the chief shepherd appears, we'll receive a crown of glory that won't fade away. And in Hebrews 13 and verse 20, he is the great shepherd. It's a benediction speaking about Jesus being brought back from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus is Jehovah. And Psalm 23 is all about Jesus. It's all about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit because it's the triune God who leads us. And it's the triune God that we need to fellowship with on a regular basis. So it's clearly emphatic. Secondly, it's intensely personal. The Lord is my shepherd. It was Charles Spurgeon who said the greatest word in the entire psalm is that monosyllable, my. And it was Martin Luther who said the heart of real religion is found in personal pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is a statement of wonderful confidence. It's a statement that is intimate. It speaks boldly about personal ownership and attachment and a relationship that is tight, that is personal. If we only said the Lord is a shepherd, it wouldn't bring much hope to our souls. You know, I can say that uh, President Obama is the president. That's a fact. But I don't have a personal relationship with him. I could even say he's my president, but there's still some distance. Here, we're saying not just that the Lord is a shepherd for other people, but he is my shepherd, and we've entered into this relationship. It's mutual, and it is dear. When, from personal experience, you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, then you can add confidently, I lack nothing. It's a statement of satisfaction. There's nothing I lack. It's a statement of wonderful contentment. The shepherd provides everything I need. And again, it's easy for us to quote the psalm, to sing the psalm. I've been amazed at how many of our hymns are taken right from Psalm 23. And we sang them, some of them today, so beautifully. But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to live it. 
And so many of us are not experiencing this life of lacking nothing. I've told you the story about the little girl who was in Sunday school class, and the teacher asked if anyone could quote Psalm 23 by heart. And this little girl, only four and a half years old, put up her hand. Ooh, 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 choose me. The pastor was a bit of surprise. She's so young. Can you really quote the entire psalm? Yes, I can, she said. He said, well, come up and do it. And she came up to the front, and she walked up to the front, and she bowed. And then she said, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want, and bowed again and walked off. <laughs> and the teacher said that was the best summary of Psalm 23 I've ever heard. While she did not quote the entire psalm, she got the heart of it. Because everything flows from verse 1. The rest of the psalm flows from verse 1. If you don't have verse 1, you've got nothing else. If you've got verse 1, you've got everything else. And today I want to share with you once again, just to remind you, we've got it all. I want to remind you what you have if the Lord is your shepherd. First of all, this fact, of Jehovah being our shepherd implies tender times. Tender times. Verse 1 through 3. Like it says in Isaiah 40, he gathers his lambs unto his arms, he holds them close to his heart, and he gently leads those with young. Tender times. Look at verse 2. It says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures or grassy meadows, he leads me beside the still waters, waters to rest by. By the way, did you notice, sometimes it's a bit distracting to me, I have to confess, when we're singing a hymn and there's this gorgeous slide behind of a wonderful stream. Does that ever distract you? Maybe you don't have ADD or whatever, but, you know. And some of you said, oh, if I could just cast a line into that. And some of us said, if I could just sit down with a good book next to that. But the idea is those, those waters were kind of rushing a little bit. The waters that God provides are just quiet. They're flowing, but they're reassuring. It's a tender moment. He restores, verse 3, my soul. You see, this tender time is all about renewal. Now, the renewal could be spiritual or it could be physical. It's probably both. Spiritual renewal means when you're going astray, he restores you by bringing you back. Physical renewal means when you're hurting and ailing, he heals or gives strength to cope. It's this whole restorative process. God loves to bring us back. He loves to heal. It's all about us. He's more concerned about us than himself. He laid down his own life for us, and he shepherds us for us. He wants to renew us. Spiritually, you and I are prone to wander, aren't we? Remember the hymn, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love? It's like we're cars and the front end is out of alignment and we're always pulling to the right to take us over the curb or pulling to the left, worse yet, to take us into oncoming traffic. And we're fighting for our dear lives to keep the car between the white lines. Spiritually speaking, I am prone to go over the curb or I'm prone to go into oncoming traffic 
both of which would be disastrous, and I struggle to keep my focus on the Lord. And he's there to restore when I go astray, to forgive. And he's there to heal when my ailing body feels that physically I am beaten and bruised. There's disease and torment. You know, I, I put very little faith in faith healers. I think many people who are proclaiming that they're faith healers today don't understand the scripture and boasting about a gift they don't possess. But I am confident in God's healing power. And I'm confident that the prayer of faith heals the sick. According to the will of God, John 11, some diseases are for the glory of God and he's going to do an amazing thing and other diseases are, ta are to take people to God. But God has all power to heal. And if you need help, go to your shepherd. He loves to restore. You and I need restoration on a regular basis. I have a phone that needs to be recharged every day. And I hate that. I hate it because I forget to do it at night and I wake up in the morning and I pick up my phone and it's got 30% of a battery left. And I know it's going to be a tough day. And so I plan my day based on recharging stations. Do you ever do that? Or I buy a cord for the car and I buy a cord for the study and I've got one at home so I can cover my bases and it still will run out. Spiritually speaking, we need to recharge our batteries every day and we need to base our life around recharging stations. Times in the presence of God. But he not only restores, he guides there's the guiding principle in this tender time. He restores my soul, verse 3, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The right path for the sheep is the path the shepherd is on that leads to the grassy meadows and the still waters, that leads to the plateau of safety, to the higher ground. That's the right path for the sheep. But for us as Christians... The spiritual sheep, the right path, is the word of God. It is the path of rightness or the righteous path. And by the way, the grassy meadow and the still waters along with the righteous path all reflect the word of God. This is where we have to drink deeply and feed our souls to be nourished. This is where we need to go to find out what is right and what is true, so that we don't veer off to the, to the right or drift off to the left. It is the word of God. And that's what the shepherd uses to guide us and to lead us. Now, out of loyalty to his character and to his promises, he does this for his name's sake. Because if the sheep are on the wrong path, it brings shame to the shepherd. If we are on the right path, we vindicate his care and concern for us. You see, it's all the, about the testimony of Christ. By the way, if you say you're a Christian, but you're living in sin, don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Please, just keep it to yourself. Because when you say, I'm a Christian, but you're walking in darkness, he's in the light, you're not having fellowship with him, and you're giving a horrible testimony to Jesus. When David committed his sin with Bathsheba, 
The Bible tells us you gave the enemies of God a great reason to blaspheme Jehovah. Does your life give others justification for blaspheming God? Walk in the right path. That's where he wants to guide us. And he leads us gently, as Isaiah 40 says. He guides us tenderly. He'll keep us back. He'll get us back in line, but he's there as a loving shepherd. But life isn't all about the tender times. I'm glad verse 4 is here because there are also trying times. And the shepherd is there for that, too. Look at verse 4. Yes, And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow, or sometimes it's called the valley, the dark valley, or sometimes it's called the valley of the shadow of death. There's a bit of variation here because this is taken from only one Hebrew word. The valley of the shadow of death is taken from one Hebrew word. It's used 20 times in the Old Testament. And sometimes the idea of darkness is dominant and the word death is not even there. At other times, it's darkness and death. So it appears that this verse is broader than just the time when you're dying. It's good for that. It's appropriate for that. But it's also appropriate for any trying time, any dark place you find yourself in. And our lives are going to be filled with the dark times, right? If you're not in a dark place now, you will be, or you've just come out of one. Because that's what life is all about. Life is about verse 4. And if we spend so much of our time under the tender care of God, and everything is going well, and we have rich pasture and quiet waters and a straight path that's right, I mean, we get to the place where we expect this, and the moment our life changes, we question God. But he said here, this is the path to heaven. Did you know that the dark valley is just as much the path of righteousness as the path that leads to the grassy meadow and the quiet waters? Just as much his path. For Jesus tread the path of a man of sorrows acquainted with grief condemned to die. And it was a righteous one. The shadow of death. Sometimes it's a dark place that leads to death. Sometimes it's a dark place that we'll get through. But notice, he leads me in this valley of the shadow, and I don't have to fear any evil because he's present. At the highest point of danger, I have his presence. At the highest point of fear, he's right there to comfort. Do you believe that? I mean, you and I, uh, we can be challenged with many fears, but understand this. God wants to take those fears upon himself and give us comfort instead and give us peace. By the way, only the Lord can accompany you through the valley of the shadow of death. Only Jesus. You know, I'm often... Uh, in a hospital or one of the pastors will be with someone in the hospital and we're with the family and the patient's getting ready for surgery 
and you know they're wearing that ridiculous gown and they have a tube in their arm and they've got drugs that are making them act weird and they're about ready to be wheeled off and then the nurses come and say it's time and so they take you through the doors uh, of the of the room you're in and you finally come to a set of doors and the nurse says this is as far as you can go family this is as far as you can go pastor they have to go the rest of the way on their own but we'll be with them they say and we say bye to them at the doors and off they go but you have the doctor and the nurses with you on the other side and you've got some faith and trust in them someday you will face death and death will say to your loved ones this as far as they can go they can go no further When you pass through these doors of death, no one can go with you. And by the way, the doctor and the nurses who've been with you all the way up to this point, they can't even go with you. You have to go this alone. But Jesus says, I will go with you. And that is comforting. I have his promise. He will never leave me, nor forsake me. And if I die, I'm right with him. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. He never lets me go. And I like to think, although I cannot prove this, that when you and I come to our last dying breath, Jesus is already there taking us to be with him. I mean, you hear stories like D.L. Moody, who's on his deathbed, and he says, I see heaven opening, and it's glorious. And his son, Will, says to the rest of the family, he's probably just hallucinating. Moody hears and says, this is no hallucination. This is no dream. Heaven's opening. I see my Savior. And a moment later, he was with him. I mean, I've heard heard of too many things that lead me to think, I cannot prove it, but lead me to think that Jesus is right there in our dying breath. Maybe as you enter into the coma. I don't know. But there he is. To lead his loved ones through the valley of the shadow. Now, we're not only comforted by his presence. He's not only there, he's packing. That's what it says. They, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. And your rod and staff, they also bring me comfort. Jesus is packing. That is, he's got the tools he needs to defend you and protect you. The rod was a small stick, kind of like a policeman's nightstick, kind of like a billy club, and it would be used to fend off predators or throw at them to scare them. And the staff is the one with the crook in it. And that was used to bring back erring sheep or rescue one that was caught in a crevasse or maybe discipline one that was going astray. And they both bring comfort, the rod and the staff. They mean the shepherd's right there. They mean the shepherd means business. And he's going to do everything he can to protect you and keep you in the right path. He is there in your darkest hour. And your heart should be filled with comfort. Your rod and your staff and your presence, they delight my soul. Where? In the valley. Did you know that your security is not dependent upon your environment? It's dependent upon his presence. It's dependent upon his enabling you to be protected But it doesn't stop there. 
He takes us through the tender times, feeding and restoring and guiding. He takes us through the trying times. We are comforted by his presence and by his protection. He takes us ultimately to the triumphant times. And I can't help but see that there's a dramatic change now. By the way, the pronouns before were he, verse 2 and 3. He makes me, he leads me, he restores me. And in verse 4, they changed to something even more personal. You and your. It's like he was talking about the shepherd. Now he's talking to the shepherd. And something else changes. I know some people try to drag or or try to maintain the imagery of the shepherd all the way through verse 6. But it seems to me it really changes. The imagery of the shepherd served its purpose. Now it's the imagery of the guest. We're not out of doors, we're indoors. We're not sheep of a flock, we're guests at a banquet. The divine host is going to provide for us a table and a room. And it's all with a sense of celebration. So if you've got the wounded times and the hurting times where the tendered shepherd guides and heals and restores, and you've got the trying times of the darkness and the fear, now you've got the times of wonderful celebration. Listen to this, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That's all about being honored That's a host preparing a banqueting table, wonderfully lavished, with superabundance, the table laden with food, perfumes, oils, anointing the head of the honored guest so that the room will smell good because sometimes the guests don't. That's what they used to do. You'd come into a banqueting room and they'd have not only the candles burning but the oils to anoint the guests. And not only that, you have a cup that cannot run dry. Always overflowing. Have you ever been somewhere where the instruction to the serving people is that they must keep your cup full? And you take a sip and they fill it again? Now, if you like what you're drinking, that's fine. But have you ever been somewhere where you don't like what you're drinking? You know, I've been overseas in a few places and they put something in my glass, and I wasn't sure what it was. I didn't know if it would make me sick, and I didn't like what I drank. And so I thought, man, okay, I'll just chug it down, you know. And as soon as I take a couple drinks, they're right there to fill it up again. And you offend them if you don't quit drinking. But if you like the stuff, wow. It's lavish. It's overabundant. And by the way, at this rich banqueting table, the best is yet to come. You've heard that story, haven't you? The best is yet to come. The person who said, let bury me with a fork. Why do you want to be buried with a fork? Well, there was a story where I used to go to my grandma's house and we would eat and the food was so great and she said, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. That meant dessert. So she said, bury me with a fork so people will say, why is the fork there? And you just tell people the best is yet to come. Well, here's the banquet. 
on the other side of the valley of the shadow. And you're being honored at the banquet. And get this, the defeated rivals are the reluctant guests because the table is prepared in the presence of your enemies and you're celebrating. That's what they used to do when you would defeat another country. You would often bring the king in and some of his leaders and they would sit down at the banquet with nothing to eat as you ate in front of them. Oh, wasn't that a great victory? Remember when you slaughtered that guy? Oh, that's your brother too bad. Let's drink. I mean, that's the way it went. Great celebration. I love it when my team wins. I'm watching on TV, and they celebrate, right? We get to the final four, and there's celebration. And everyone floods the court, and, and Izzo is being interviewed, and he's happy, and he's crying, and he's thanking everyone, and Magic Johnson is interviewed, and they're cutting down the next. I love the celebration. And then we lose <laughs> to that team I won't even mention. And as soon as we lose, I turn the TV off because I can't stand to watch the enemy celebrate. Those arrogant, lucky, ref-aided Whatever, you know. Does that ever happen to you? I love the celebration when it's my team. I hate it when it's the other team. I don't think literally in heaven we're going to see our enemies as we banquet, but our enemies are defeated. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil, death, sin, gone. Tears, gone. Death, gone. My enemies are defeated, and I'm celebrating. But not only am I an honored guest at a banquet, I am a wonderful resident in a mansion forever. There's this welcoming aspect. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. By the way, in verse 2 and 3, it was the Lord who was leading me as my shepherd in front of me. And now it's the Lord, his goodness and mercy that are following me. He's in front of me and he's behind me. And in the valley of the shadow, he's around me. He's with me. The Lord encircles you. See his presence. Like we said last week, get to know his presence and delight in it. But he welcomes us into heaven. We're more than an acquaintance invited for a one night, uh, for, for a day's visit and an evening's lodging. We live with him forever. This sounds a lot like Jesus in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also forever. Forever is a tough concept, but that's what it says. I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. My pilgrimage ends at the house of the Lord. The long journey home ends at a beautiful destination, and I will dwell with the one that I lived with here. I will live with in the hereafter forever. He guides my steps, and he will never leave me. Wow. It doesn't get any better than that. If you have the Lord as your shepherd, you've got it all. 
H.A. Ironside, the famous pastor from Moody Church years ago, asked a Christian, how are you getting along? The Christian kind of in a glum fashion said, well, okay, I guess, under the circumstances. Ironside said, so sorry to hear that you're under them. When our wonderful Lord has provided all the provisions we need to live above them. And isn't that true? How come you're under it when he wants you to live above it? When he's right there with you. Now, I love the poor Christian man who sat down to eat his meal. He was poor, so it was only bread and water. He was about ready to pray and give thanks, and he burst into tears. Lord, I am truly a blessed man. All of this, and Jesus too. I have it all. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the truth of this wonderful psalm. Not theoretically, not in the abstract. But Lord, let us, to, let us experience it in our daily life. Let us commune with the shepherd. From describing you to others to conversing with you about the rich blessings you provide. And if we have verse 1, everything flows from there. Thank you for these rich gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.